Duggins. This is part four of Alabama Public Radio's podcast, No Stone Unturned. We're looking at efforts to preserve slave cemeteries in the state and the impact this issue has on the descendants of the enslaved. Hey, everybody, heads up. We are all having a very good time here, but we got a workshop to put on. So it starts in four minutes next door. In our last installment, we hit the road for the 20th annual workshop of the Alabama Cemetery Preservation Alliance. That's where we met Ollie Ballard. I was able, you know, to find my great-great-grandfather listed, and he was on the Longwood Plantation. And the Longwood Plantation uh, slaveholder was an early pioneer who was a physician. The workshop talked about cleaning tombstones, which is fine, but Ballard was looking for something more basic, the burial site of her great-great-grandfather. I'm thinking, you know, and trying to put together what my uh, forefathers said to me, that, that more than likely my great-great-grandfather was on this plantation. All of this outlined the situation African-American families can face when they go looking for the burial sites of their ancestors compared to their white neighbors. They may not see anything but a rock. They may not see nothing but a tree. You know, you're not going to be able to go say, oh, that's my grandfather, great-great-great-great-slave. That's where we met Ethel Alexander. She's past president of the Birmingham African-American Genealogy Group, the largest of its kind in the state. Alexander says before 1870, most of the records on enslaved people in the U.S. were bills of sale. We weren't really human. We were chattel, C-H-A-T-T-L-E. So when, you, say for instance, uh, uh, a planter, he dies, and they have to sell everything, the first thing they sell would be their slaves, and they're listed just before the animals. So it's your chattels, and then it's your cows, your horses, and your uh, chickens, and whatever. So we didn't really have names except for the first names they would give you. Good morning, everyone. The Subcommittee on National Parks, Forests, and Public Lands will now come to order. The Subcommittee is meeting today to hear testimony. Congress may be poised to help with what's called the African American Burial Site Preservation Act. Too often, we in Alabama uh, like to shy away from our very painful a pass of slavery. Democrat Terry Sewell of Alabama is a co-sponsor of the U.S. House bill. But, you know, we're an important part of uh, America's story, and I think that it's important that we preserve all aspects of the story. Alabama Public Radio News spent nine months looking into efforts to find and preserve slave cemeteries in the state. By the time of the Civil War, an estimated 400,000 people were held as slaves in Alabama. Some accounts put the number throughout the South at closer to 4 million. That would appear to make the issue of slave cemetery preservation a Southern issue, but APR found that's not the case. I would like to know that, you know, definitely, that this is the location of Longwood Plantation. I would like to go there and just, you know, walk the grounds, touch the soil, and feel the presence of my ancestors. I would love to do that. That wasn't the only story Ballard told that day. Huntsville had a cemetery for slaves and those who were newly freed. That land was sold to the city. Ballard says it got lost in the fine print. And so they, uh, they had a stipulation in the deed that the colored cemetery must be protected. However, it was not protected. Ballard says Huntsville built a parking deck on that spot. APR heard a similar story with a different ending. So what happened was they were trying to widen 
this road, Foothill Road in Bridgewater. That's Lorraine Allen. And the contractor looked up and he says, oh my God. He said, there's a cemetery up there. He says, I think it's a slave cemetery. I don't know how he knew it. He just instinctively knew it. Allen's slave cemetery isn't in Alabama. It isn't even in the South. Welcome to Newark, everyone. The local time is 1216. Please remain seated with your seatbelt securely fastened and keep the aisle clear until we have parked at the gate and the captain has... In fact, to talk with Alan about it, I had to fly coach. For any personal items, especially computer tablets and cell phones, and speaking of those cell phones, you may now use your cell phone in all functions. Bridgewater, New Jersey sits about a half hour southwest of Newark Liberty International Airport. It's here that we found the Prince Rogers Slave Cemetery. It's wedged between two suburban homes on Foothill Road. Prince Rogers was an enslaved, amazing human being that was born in 1815. Lorraine Allen met us there. His parents were literally kidnapped from Africa by the Dutch purposely for free labor. Allen formed a foundation to preserve the Bridgewater burial site. Raising money to protect this slave cemetery is only part of the battle. The other is convincing her own grandchildren that slavery existed in New Jersey. They call me Mimi. Mimi, for God's sake, we live in Somerville, New Jersey. I said, do you realize that they still have Ku Klux Klan's ramblings in certain areas over here? Everything that happened in the South happened here in the North. Make no mistake about it. Historians say 11,000 enslaved Africans were in New Jersey at the time of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. The number grew from there. Um, but we're looking about 12,500 in the year 1800, and about 80% of um, Africans and African Americans in New Jersey at that point are enslaved. Dr. Jesse Baker teaches at Rutgers University. Specifically, he's with the Scarlet and Black Research Center. It focuses on racism against African Americans. New Jersey residents are often surprised when they hear about slavery in the Garden State. Baker says one group in particular. When we talk, you know, when I talk to African Americans in New Jersey who are not fully aware of the depth of the history of slavery in this state, they are often upset that they haven't learned it earlier, uh, that they have been told uh, their whole lives that this was a Southern problem, but that New Jersey wasn't like that. Um, it shifts their perspective of their own home state. Baker says slavery in northern states has been talked about in academic circles for almost a century, but it's only been studied seriously since the 1990s. There is much more an awareness of this history now. It's a question of um, making sure that that trickles down to things like high school textbooks um, and to, to students at an earlier age before they get to college. Back in the town of Bridgewater, it doesn't take long to find someone who's surprised about slavery in New Jersey. Um, no, I had no idea. Uh-uh. It was a surprise. Christopher Montefusco lives on Foothill Road. Yeah, no, it's crazy to think New Jersey that this far away. So I was totally shocked, totally blown away. Montefusco wasn't surprised that I was here to talk about the Prince Rogers Slave Cemetery. It's in his side yard. The tombstones are within view of the goalie net Montefusco's son uses for soccer practice. We had a little bit of work. We put this pathway in because there was no pathway. So that, you know, um, when we had the dedication, 
back in um, September. We had like Lorraine Allen shows us Prince Roger's tombstone. It's the largest in the cemetery. The names and dates are worn away and harder to read. Both that marker and the smaller ones have parts broken off. Allen thinks it was local teenagers. And I guess they were drinking and they decided that they were going to take the stones and they literally lifted them up out the ground and just threw them all over the cemetery. Literally broke them in half. The upper left-hand corner of Prince Roger's grave marker is chipped off. Allen says it wasn't for a lack of trying. Now, Prince Roger's stone, if you look, they weren't able to get it up out the ground, but they were able to break it, and they had to make an effort to break that stone. Prince Roger's slavery ended in 1839. A New Jersey law freed captive women at the age of 21 and men at 25. The cemetery that bears Roger's name was officially dedicated last year, but Allen says by that time, the name of the former slave was all over town. There's a 10-acre complex um, right around the corner on Prince Rogers Avenue that is named in his honor, and there's a shopping center, Prince Rogers uh, Shopping Center, and Prince Rogers Avenue goes all the way into what we call the Bridgewater Commons. But Allen wants Roger's stories to live on as well. He supposedly fought in the U.S. Civil War as a free man, and his descendants live in Bridgewater to this day. All of the families we've met in our series have cemeteries and memories they're working to preserve, but that chance may be slipping away due to the passage of time. There's also the issue of people, both white and black, who don't want to talk about racial issues, including slavery. That's in part five. I'm Pat Duggins. Thanks for listening to part four of Alabama Public Radio's podcast, No Stone Unturned. Addressing the slave issue in the North was an important perspective, but the way I described flying to New Jersey was, shall we say, the family-friendly version of what happened. Here's the director's cut. I contacted Lorraine Allen by phone and did a pre-interview to see if her story in the Prince Roger Slave Cemetery fit into our coverage. It did. So I arranged for a face-to-face -face interview in New Jersey, booked a hotel, a rental car, and an airline flight. So far, so good. My trip to New Jersey was during the post-COVID airline travel nightmare of canceled and rescheduled flights. I was supposed to leave Friday morning. That is, until my cell phone buzzed with a text from the airline at midnight on Thursday. My flight had been canceled and I had to reschedule. That meant picking a new flight, changing my hotel, my rental car, and the interview with Lorraine Allen. The new flight left Saturday morning. That is, my Saturday morning flight got canceled. The earliest I could go was Saturday night. Welcome to Newark, everyone. The local time is 12.16. That's a.m., and my interviews were set for 8 o'clock later that morning. The front desk clerk at my hotel thought I was crazy when I said I was checking in at 1 a.m. and checking out at 7 a.m. to keep everything on schedule. It all worked out, and the interviews were great. Be sure to tune in for the conclusion of Alabama Public Radio's podcast, No Stone Unturned. We had production assistance from WRSU-FM at Rutgers University and WVUA23-TV in Tuscaloosa. Special thanks to APR's Joe Moody and Nala Pena. Our John Welch Pruitt ghost story was read by Allison Hetzel. Our podcast producer is Caroline Vincent. I'm Pat Duggins. We'll see you next time for the conclusion of No Stone Unturned.